News Talk 11 1099.3 WBT, the Pete Callender Show. Third hour rolling along. Thanks so much for hanging out. I appreciate it. You can email Pete at the Pete Callender Show. You can also dial up 704-570-1110 or 1-800-WBT-1110. Going over this Washington Examiner article written by Jay Cost from several weeks ago. But as I have explained before, how I develop show prep is... I'll, you know, some things get burned immediately. Some things get into the pile and you, you do them and they got to move today. If you don't do it today, it's going to expire. It is expiring content, as they say. And so you get to it today. Some of the stuff, though, I just kind of stack up. And then when I get enough of, you know, enough pieces, then I can put them all together. And that's where I'm at with the inflation stuff now. So the J Cost article, I guess I should give the headline on it. It is the political power of inflation. He says, in large doses, inflation leads to political unrest and even revolution. In moderate doses, it makes people unhappy about their current circumstances and pessimistic about their futures. Inflation in the 1970s did not lead to a Jacobin revolution, but it certainly contributed to the Reagan revolution. Got a tweet here from Hellion2172 at Pete Callender. I learned what the word malaise meant at an extremely young age. I also heard a lot about the misery index regarding inflation in the 70s. Yes, malaise. That was the word of the, of the decade. Jay Cost concludes, hopefully, policymakers will be able to get inflation under control. They... Okay. He says they can, uh, or sorry, they claim they can, but then again, Just a few months ago, they were promising inflation would be transient. We should likewise hope that, in an effort to curb inflation, the Federal Reserve does not take an aggressive course of monetary contraction, which would or could endanger the still fragile economic recovery. When Fed Chairman Paul Volcker did that in the early 80s, it cured the stagflation of the 70s, which is high inflation with also high unemployment. That's stagflation. So Volcker cured the stagflation of the 70s, but it contributed to the nasty recession of 1982. So I give you that. I'm not making predictions, I mean, on any of this stuff. I'm not an expert. But I put it out there so it's on your radar. We may be in sailing into a pretty nasty recession, depending on what happens. Now, the Fed... Yesterday, the Federal Reserve took action on inflation by taking almost the bare minimum level of action possible. So they did do something, but it is very, 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 very small. They announced a 0.25% increase in the target interest rate. Uh, They signaled that more increases than predicted could be on tap and provide a significant reassessment for inflation in the longer term. Uh, Ed Morrissey at HotAir.com writing about this. The Fed had kept rates near zero since March 2020, and the decision marked its first increase since 2018. Policymakers also projected six more similarly sized increases over the course of 2022. Okay, so we just had one. They're going to do six more. So that's each of a quarter percent. 
And so what you're you're looking to raise interest rates by up. So we'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of what? One and three quarters or so. Just under two percent. OK. Central bankers plotted a more aggressive plan for controlling inflation than in December when they when they last released their projections. Officials now expect to raise rates to 2.8 percent by the end of 2023, based on the median estimate up from 1.6, blah, 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 blah. Uh, That is high enough by the Fed's own estimates. It would amount to actually tapping the brakes on the economy, not just taking a foot off the gas pedal. Um, Ed Morrissey notes, though, that there was a rare moment of open dissent at the Fed over this. One member, James Bullard, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, he voted against the committee's decision because he wanted a larger interest rate increase. He wanted half a point. Now, the Fed also said that it's going to start scaling back its enormous $9 trillion balance sheet at an upcoming meeting, but it gave no specifics. And Ed Morrissey says, good luck selling off all that backlog. Of course, the Fed doesn't intend to try to roll back all of its 13-year pursuit of quantitative easing. Do you remember that? Quantitative easing. Do you remember that when that term first hit the mouths of the D.C. set? I didn't realize it had been so long. But that's when the last downturn occurred and they they had to pump all this money in. Quantitative easing, right? Because we couldn't call it just, you know, printing money, helicopter money. They're hoping to unwind at least the last couple years of its monetary expansion to soothe the 40-year record inflation that the Fed's bubble has fueled. Now, Larry Summers, former Clinton guy, former Obama guy, not exactly a right-winger, okay? But he's an, uh, he's an economist guy. And Ed Morrissey says that he tends to look at these things honestly. Larry Summers wrote an op-ed. And he said, look, anything's possible. And, hey, sometimes wishful thinking can prove self-fulfilling. You know, sometimes that happens. But I believe the Fed has not internalized the magnitude of its errors over the past year. It's operating with an inappropriate and dangerous framework, and it needs to take far stronger action to support price stability than appears likely. The Fed's current policy trajectory is likely to lead to stagflation with average unemployment and inflation, both averaging over 5% over the next few years. And ultimately, on to a major recession. Indeed, recent research that I conducted with my Harvard colleague Alex Domash, 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 anyway, uh, shows that uh, overheating conditions of high inflation and low unemployment are usually followed in short order by recession. A year ago, the Fed thought that inflation would be yeah somewhere in around the 2% range and that that would last for about a year. Six months ago, it was expressing optimism that this was just transitory. Two weeks ago, it was still buying mortgage-backed securities even as house prices had increased by more than 20%. No explanation has been offered for these rather momentous errors. News 
Talk 1110-993-WBT. I almost forgot. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Yes, yes, I am Irish. So this is my day. Do not celebrate it in any way, lest you uh, culturally appropriate from me. Uh, President Biden, uh, he... He was doing some celebrations today for the uh, for the St. Patrick's Day and had this had this pearl of wisdom. I really like when you think of the kinds when you think of the kinds of wisdom and wit that Irish people have provided the world for centuries. This this might be. Well, top five from Joe Biden today. I may be Irish, but I'm not stupid. I married Dominic Giacoppa's daughter. You did not hear that incorrectly. I may be Irish, but I'm not stupid. I may be Irish, but I'm not stupid. Some good work there, Joe. (laughs) Oh, my God. What's that? Alrighty. A year ago, the Fed thought that inflation would be about 2%. Six months ago, it said it was transitory. Two weeks ago, it was still buying mortgage-backed securities, even as house prices had increased by more than 20%. No explanation has been offered for these rather momentous errors. That's, uh, well, it's Ed Morrissey at HotAir.com, and he's quoting Larry Summers, who wrote that in an op-ed. Ed Morrissey then uh, then goes on to say, expect to hear plenty of scoffing at Summers' prediction from the White House, a particular habit of the Biden administration in reaction to substantive criticism. I mean, that's how the White House treated Summers 13 months ago when he warned again in a Washington Post column that Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion American rescue plan would touch off a major wave of inflation. And that's why it kind of hacked me off watching the county commissioners pat themselves on the back and laud the lard that was being distributed out to all of the nonprofits and all of the groups. And this is not an indictment on any of the work that they do. And I am not disparaging the people or their mission or anything else, but there is a cost. There is a cost. And I know you guys on the left, you like to just call everything an investment, but you can't make an investment unless you have something to invest. Whether it's time or money, that's really all you got. Time or money. Well, I guess talent as well. But that's kind of time. But in the grand scheme of things, it's it's time and it's money. And usually people have one or the other. I got a feeling you're about to make a lot of people's lives more miserable. And you're you're never going... And by the way, nobody, no no reporters will ever ask them about any of this. Like, hey, do you think that it's wise to to take this money and spend all this money and knowing that it's going to put people like further behind? It's going to devalue the dollar. It's basically a wage cut. So you're basically cutting everybody's wages because of this funding. And most of the money that has been approved, it hasn't even gotten out the door yet. So it's going to get a lot worse for them. We still have two more rounds of ARP money that the Board of County Commissioners are giddy over allocating. Uh, Ed Morris, he goes on to say, I would bet on Summers being correct. He might even be a bit optimistic. 
The Fed still will uh, have to expand the monetary supply to deal with massive budget deficits, which means we're structurally locked into inflation at the moment until a recession knocks the wind out of it, and us for that matter. It now seems entirely likely that these levels of inflation will only marginally improve between now and the end of the year, which means Democrats had better develop a more convincing Putin did it argument or start planning for a long stay in the political wilderness. All right, I'll go to Terry. Hello, Terry. Welcome to the show. Turn down your radio, please, Terry. Uh, I don't have it on. Well, that's funny because I can hear myself. Yeah, I can hear myself too. It's my phone. Ah, I got you. All right, what's up? Sorry about that. Then what's going on? Well, first off, uh, I like to say that you're insightful, entertaining, and have a good sense of humor, and Charlotte is better for you. Oh, thank you, Terry. I appreciate that. But in response to increasing inflation and gas prices, I have this to say. We're at Biden Creek without a paddle, and I'll send it there. All right. Thank you, Terry. I appreciate it. See, he butters you up to to, to give him space. To let the joke land. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That's Milton Friedman. 1963 delivered that famous line in a talk that he gave in India. During Carter, can you imagine this? During Carter, uh, the average annual inflation rate in Carter's presidency, 10.5%. Prices were increasing 10.5% per year on average. Friedman made his comment a decade prior. Well, not quite a decade. Well, yeah, almost a decade prior. Inflation, by definition, means that money loses its purchasing power and therefore is a monetary phenomenon. But Friedman meant a lot more than just the obvious. After having defined inflation in that same talk as a, quote, steady and sustained rise in prices, Friedman argued that one could not find inflation anywhere in the world that was not caused by a prior increase in the supply of money or in the growth rate of the supply of money. It's almost as if we ignored history. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. David Henderson writing at the Hoover Institute, hoover.org, about inflation. He made some predictions. I'm not going to go through all of this stuff, but he's he's telling the story about Milton Friedman and uh, the famous line that Friedman delivered about inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And by the way, if you don't know who Milton Friedman is, if you are of the younger persuasion, uh, and you don't know who Uncle Milty is or was, um, go to YouTube. I would highly recommend. Uh, he was he was the 1960s Ben Shapiro, but only on economics. And he's a Nobel Prize winning ec- uh, economist. And he was just the nicest guy ever. Just always had a smile, whimsical, twinkle in the eye kind of guy, just... But I would I would recommend if you're and I say he was the Ben Shapiro because he would go to college campuses and he would take Q&A like Shapiro does from these college kids. 
who are being, you know, steeped in left-wing economic theory. And here's Uncle Milty showing up and just eviscerating their arguments. And um, what was the other one? Phil Donahue. I couldn't remember his, <laughs> I cannot remember his first name. Phil Donahue had Milton Friedman on his old uh, daytime talk show. And there are several clips from that episode. Well worth your time. I mean, the video quality is pretty awful, but well worth your time. Because Donahue is running around the audience taking questions and all this. And this was one of the, I, 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 I quote Friedman a lot, when people in, in service of an agenda to grow the state and put the government in charge of more things um, and to, uh, to, to move us more towards a command control economic system. And what do they do? They, they disparage the rich and the, the evil and the corporations, right? There are all these boogeymen uh, in the, the capitalist market that they point to. And what Friedman's response was to Donahue about this, well, what, where are these angels among us? Do they all work in government? They're all going to go to work in government? Where do you think that all these people go? Where are these people among us that are so much better that aren't motivated by the dollar? And then he says to him about greed. He's like, oh, are, are, are you greedy? What, you know, the stuff that you want, the stuff that you need, does that make you greedy? Oh, no, we're not greedy. I'm not greedy. It's the other guy that's greedy. Great, great mind. So I highly recommend you watching YouTube videos if you don't know who Milton Friedman is. But he's the one who pointed out, yes, the obvious thing, that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomena. And after having defined inflation in this talk in 1963 in India, he defined it as a, quote, steady and sustained rise in prices. Friedman argued that one could not find inflation anywhere in the world that was not caused by a prior increase in the supply of money. So seems pretty clearly attached, right? Increase the supply of the money and you get inflation. But within a decade, and by the way, most professional economists in 1963, they thought Friedman was wrong. They were still in the thrall of John Maynard Keynes, J.M. Keynes, which is, by the way, that's the street where the NPR affiliate is. Keynesian economics. This was all the rage. John Maynard Keynes, they were all about priming the pump. Got to pour a bunch of the taxpayer-funded money in so the taxpayers can make more money and pay more taxes. So we take the taxpayer money, put it back in or something. That's the de- priming the pump. And this is why the quantitative easing of 13 years ago that we're still doing, this constant injection of more and more money into the system, it's a Keynesian philosophy. Now it's morphed into this, I don't even know what it's called, this was it MMT, modern monetary theory, which, as I understand it, is simply deficits don't matter, and you can spend however much you want which to me sounds like a recipe for civilizational collapse, but, I mean, I'm just going by history. I'm not an economist. But within a decade after uh, Friedman made his comments at that speech, the evidence from the United States and other countries had now convinced most economists that Friedman was, in fact, correct. 
One other point here from, uh, again, this is at the Hoover Institute's website, hoover.org, by David R. Henderson, called Inflation, True and False. He makes some predictions here, but he says, as lockdowns ended and people got vaccinated, both reasons for reducing our spending are disappearing. The odds are very high that we will reduce our hoarding and increase money's velocity. The Federal Reserve Board officials are aware of this. They're not dummies. But people in those positions often have what economist Friedrich Hayek called a fatal conceit. You hear me mention this term as well. The fatal conceit, which is they think they can manage things better than they can. This is always the case. And it it manifests itself not just in economic circles, but in virtually all bureaucratic institutions. People believe that if you just put me in control of these other people and I get to direct them to make certain choices that I want them to make, then I can manage this and I can avoid problems. The fatal conceit that you are somehow smarter than everybody else. Collectively. And this gets to that theory of the wisdom of the crowds, which is you may be the smartest person in that crowd, but you are not smarter than that crowd. They, the, the people, all the other people, collectively have more wisdom and knowledge than you could possibly have. You may be the smartest individual compared to one other individual, but not to the crowd. And that's essentially what capitalism is. That's the market. The crowd will determine where things go, like with prices and supplies, they send signals and such, and this allows the market to operate in the most efficient way possible, servicing the most amount of people's needs in the uh, the cheapest way and quickest way possible. And if you don't believe that to be the case, then go look at the world poverty rate, which has cratered over the last 20 years, thanks to capitalism. It is literally saving the world and the people on the planet. Well, I mean, it wasn't until Biden got into office. I'm kidding. I'm just not really. That's Blues Traveler. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here for a mere seven more minutes. Not that I'm counting. Uh, I can tell you, Brett Winterbull is coming up, but only briefly. He's only putting in, what would it be? One-sixth of a show, right? One-sixth of a show is what he's doing. One-sixth. Well, because we've got the Tar Heels. The because yeah, it's the it's the oh ah uh, don't say it I almost said it I almost said the double M trademark word I did not I did not do it but the basketballing is going on and uh, the Tar Heels are playing I'm sure everybody knows that uh, and so we are carrying that game and that game's gonna or the coverage is gonna start up at about three thirty so Brett's gonna do uh, from three to three thirty. But he does have to make it up. Because, is it tomorrow? Yeah, so tomorrow, they get him. It's, it's so, I mean, this is like, it's like GovCo. So he gets, he gets a half hour, but then he's got to make up an hour back uh, tomorrow for, um, 
Charlotte at six because Garrison is out. Yeah, so that's making up. <laughs> no, no, it's yeah. So uh, he's, he's gonna have to he's gonna have to talk really really fast to get everything in in half an hour today because there's a lot of stuff going on today. Yeah, not that you would know it from listening to my show. But anyway, the <laughs> the Raleigh City Council voted to drop parking requirements across the city for new developments. Charlotte leaders are rethinking parking standards as part of the city's expansive unified development ordinance that's uh, being uh, drafted. A lot of cities. This is a piece at the Charlotte Observer by Keelan Frazier. In many cities, zoning laws require developers to provide a certain number of off-street parking spaces for new projects. The required number of spaces is usually based on the size and type of development. Shopping center, for example, has to provide one parking space for every 250 square feet of gross floor area. You also have to have 14,000 spaces for uh, handicap parking that take up the whole front of, like, the first half mile, I believe. Um, no, I'm kidding. But it, it, there are requirements on all that stuff. There are minimums for all of this stuff. Uh, the same is true for housing. Apartment complexes, single-family dwellings typically have to provide a certain number of parking spaces per unit as well as additional spaces per guest. All of that might seem like a good thing. After all, if the developers are not required to make parking, then it becomes even harder to find someplace to park, right? I love this. Maybe, but that's kind of the point, which is precisely what people said when they opposed the building of an arena in Uptown Charlotte, low those 20 years ago, 22 years ago, almost. They said people are not going to want to come uptown to go see the basketball games because there's not going to be adequate parking. And all the city leaders, all the boosters, they were like, Whoa, what do you suburbanites want? Like these big parking lots out in the middle of nowhere. And the suburban moms pushing strollers are like, yes, that's what we would prefer when we take the kids to see the circus, which you're not allowed to go to anymore. But well, no, they just don't have any animals, right? But So that's kind of the point. So the, it is intentional. It is intentional to make parking so scarce that you won't drive into Center City. That's the point. Now, I don't know if that's going to work out very well for, you know, Center City, but that's the point. In their mind, they think that if you uh, just get rid of the minimums, nobody will build any more parking spaces. You can just, as uh, I think Dimple Ajmer is quoted in one of the pieces here at, uh, yeah, Queen City News, Charlotte City Councilwoman Dimple Ajmera says, quote, if you don't have to build minimum parking requirements because regulation says so, you can build more units you can build more retail space. You can build more affordable housing. So everybody's just going to walk everywhere, which is fine. If you live close enough to walk someplace and someone's not lighting cars on fire as part of some social justice protest out in front of your building, then it's all fine and good. You can do that walk. Sure. I understand. Like, I am an all of the above kind of guy when it comes to zoning stuff and development stuff. I'm an all of the above. I want, I think there's a place for people who want to have the benefits of their personal, secure, open space on a cul-de-sac for their to raise their family, I think they should have that option. I think if you want the urban lifestyle, you should have that option as well. If you don't want a car and you want to be able to walk everywhere and you want to, you know, kind of just 
exude that sort of uh, moral superiority that you are not killing the planet fast as fast as everybody else, then you could have that option as well. I think that's all fine and good. I'm just not so sure that um, you've thought it really through that you're going to crunch the parking to the point where no one's going to want to go there. And all you're going to have is just really, really dense places like these little micro dense districts or something. And maybe that's the point. But I also have seen some of the stuff like China building those ghost cities. Yeah. And like, I almost wonder if that's kind of the route you're taking us down. I mean, give it a shot. We'll see what happens. There are a bunch of other cities that have gone this direction on the, uh, on the, uh, the, the removal of the minimums. Like 200 cities, I think is what, uh, Kellen Frazier wrote about, uh, have, have done away with these minimums. Sacramento and Portland, they've already done away with them. Doing so has contributed to the development of affordable housing and further incentivized transit use. So on the bright side, you get the denser development, you don't get the parking, and you get to ride the bus in Charlotte. Oh, it's a win, win, win. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Brett Winterville's up next. Stick around. Don't break anything while I'm gone.